The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Many thanks to the people who came early tonight to clean. Just want to acknowledge that's a great gift to the center. Adam and Nick and Dick, our leader, and uh, Mike Pre was here early. If you ever want to join in, you can come by uh, about 6 o'clock on Sunday and help out getting the center nice and beautiful for the community. So this uh, week, I'm finishing up a series of talks on patience. It's the fifth of the ten paramis, this list of beautiful qualities of the heart that naturally get developed along with generosity and non-harming and renunciation and energy and truthfulness and equanimity, loving-kindness, resoluteness. And I think there's one more there, and I'm probably forgetting. Wisdom? Did I say wisdom? So these are the ten paramis, perfections of the heart. And uh, in terms of patience, we've talked a lot about it in different ways. And one of the things that it's important to keep bringing up about patience is that it's easy to misunderstand, to think about it in a particular way. And there's a particular section in Joseph Goldstein's book where he talks about this, another way of talking about the middle way. This is a phrase the Buddha used that I think is especially useful. And in this light, it's the middle way is not some point between two other points, but it's not this way, and it's not that way. It's a completely different angle on how to be in a moment or how to be in life. And the particular way he talks about it is how, although effort is really important, if that's all we focus on, it turns into some kind of acquisition, like I'm making strong effort to get somewhere in life, in my practice. And how surrender can also get misunderstood, you know, thinking about practice just about giving up, it turns into resignation. So I'll read a little bit about this and then and then talk about patience in this light. So this is from Joseph Goldstein's book, Insight Meditation. He says, without the fire of effort, nothing happens. We simply live out and act out all the old habit patterns of our conditioning. It is extremely difficult to step outside these habits to discern in a clear, fresh way what is actually occurring and to make choices based on wisdom rather than on reactive conditioning. So obviously we need some kind of fire in practice or as a friend of mine told me once, if we do what we've always done, we get what we've always gotten. So we need to make an effort not to fall into the ruts of our habit energy. But Joseph goes on, he says, but effort alone is not enough. Valuable as this quality is, it can also lead us astray if it is overdeveloped. We can become attached to the goal of enlightenment and become very ambitious with a kind of spiritual competitiveness or a strong self-judgment about our progress. We can strive and strain with an excessive urgency that can become desperation. Wanting something to happen right now gets in the way of clear seeing. It leads to frustration, disappointment, even despair. We probably recognize this, I mean, at different moments, at least in life, where we were really caught. And it's a kind of uh, arrogance thinking that if only I work hard enough, if only I apply my mind clearly enough, I will overcome the obstacles in my life. And it's such a self-centered trip to think that the only thing keeping me from what I want is, you know, my lack of diligence, my lack of effort, my lack of competence. But it's, it's an arrogance in the sense we're missing how our lives are being co-authored by innumerable forces. And our particular competence or energy, you know, diligence that we have in a particular moment, that's just one piece of many, many causes and conditions at play. 
He goes on, recognizing often through painful personal experience the difficulties that come from such a striving, expecting mind. Many people discard the notion of the goal altogether. This is also a mistake. If we abandon a sense of a goal and become attached to the idea that practice is simply becoming aware and mindful in the moment without any sense of destination, development, or deepening realization, then we lose a source of tremendous energy and inspiration. And this is probably another thing that many of us can recognize, at least in times in practice. I sit every day, you know, I'm mindful, I'm coming back to the breath, but nothing happens. You know, is this all there is? And it's a sense like, uh, what am I doing? Why am I returning to the breath? What's the point? And so we give up because we, we've lost the sense that this practice of coming back to the breath or being mindful of the present moment, we've lost sort of the uh, energy that there's a, there is a path here. There's something to waken to, something that leads to freedom, to liberation of the weight or the constriction in the mind and heart. So the, uh, Joseph goes on to talk about the balance that I mentioned earlier. He says, the critical balance we need to discover in meditation practice, and indeed in all aspects of our life, is the equipoise between effort and surrender. On the surface, these two qualities seem to contradict each other. How can we make effort be purposeful and at the same time surrender to what is happening, to the natural unfolding of our experience? Grasping this paradox is a decisive turning point in coming to understand the whole spiritual journey. How can we make effort be purposeful and at the same time surrender to what is happening, to the natural unfolding of our experience? And I think this is where patience comes in. I mean, it's just a word, of course, but to understand that balance that's not, in, not the imbalance of banking on surrender only, or the imbalance of banking on some kind of personal effort solely. So often in practice we talk about the quality of surrender as a relaxation. There is both physical and mental relaxing, letting go, trusting, softening, opening. But there's also a building up of energy that's just as important and not and it doesn't contradict the letting go, the relaxation, the receptivity. So there's always, you know, in general, anywhere in our life, whether we're looking at intimate relationships or just being happy and successful in our interactions with community and with economics, earning a living, and all aspects, it always comes down to this balance of assertive and receptive. And this is true in meditation practice. So patience is this balance. You know, patience has a real strength to it, a willingness to show up, a willingness to be vulnerable, a willingness to bear with what feels unbearable. But patience also has a quality of surrender, like a willingness to be with confusion and not feeling like, well, I'm going to impose some meaning because I'm adver uh, averse to not knowing. I'm averse to confusion, so I'll just assume I know what I'm doing or I'll assume I know what's going on here as a way of avoiding the confusion or the dullness or the disorientation. So this balance, you know, where we're making effort purposeful and at the same time surrendering to what's happening, this really is something we can practice. You know, one of the things that's so mysterious and controversial even in meditation practice and in Buddhism is the understanding of awareness. It's interesting how this has become a real debating point because the Buddha and a number of his teachings made it really clear that the essence of our 
problem as human beings is that we cling to the experience of the five physical senses. We cling to perception. We cling to mental formations and feelings of pleasantness and unpleasantness and consciousness itself. And so the solution to, you know, that leads to true happiness is to not cling to any of these five things. These are the five aggregates, if you're not familiar. You could just simplify it, body, uh, mind and body, right? Perception, feeling of pleasant and unpleasant, mental formations, the mental content, mental qualities, that's all mental formations, and consciousness. These are just four aspects of the mind, with mental formations being sort of, it's everything that the other three aren't. So if it's not perception or feeling tone or consciousness, then it's a mental formation. That sums up the mind, and then form is the five physical senses. So the Buddha says, don't cling to that. That is the equivalent of freedom or nibbana, the unconditioned. Clinging to that is called samsara or ordinary human suffering. But this equipose that uh, Joseph's talking about, it does have something to do with consciousness, but not, not a fixed consciousness. Normally, in any moment, you know, we, we're conscious, of course, unless we're not, unless we're in deep sleep or under some drug-induced state where we're completely unconscious. But otherwise, we're conscious. But we don't know... We don't understand the experience of consciousness. We only understand the object of consciousness. So, for example, I understand now the experience of sitting in front of a group, you know, the scene of a lot of people. Or I can experience, with consciousness, I can experience the feeling of the air touching my skin or the feeling of the clothes against the skin. I can feel the, the burning or the sensations in my knee. I can notice, you know, the qualities of mind, certain, you know, clarity. But these are objects that are being known. You can't really know in the same way consciousness itself or awareness itself. We know it indirectly because we know that things are being known. So we impute, you know, we have some sense that there must be something illuminating these objects that are being known, something um, allowing the connection to happen, to see Dick and to know, okay, I'm seeing Dick over there. So this equipose between effort and release, surrender, I think points to the experience, you know, what we sometimes call Buddha or once, you know, where the Buddha, in one particular discourse, talked about unrestricted awareness, unrestricted consciousness, as a way of pointing to the unconditioned. But he was really careful. Mostly he didn't talk this way because it's easy to turn awareness into who we are. Right? It's just another thing to take personally. Oh, I am the consciousness. I am the awareness. But we don't want to fix on anything. So then maybe we can use this as part of our, our instruction for meditation, this balance where there is a kind of energy, a brightness, an interest, a wakefulness is probably the best word. Or we often use mindfulness. There is this energetic quality of knowing but it's empty, it's released, it's surrendered. There's no self coming out of that knowing. The knowing isn't fixing. So when we do fix, like even now if I, you know, in, in the experience of seeing, I can easily, my mind can easily fix on it. And then it immediately includes a sense of self, like I'm sitting here experiencing a lot of people in the room. So then, then it's a fixed experience. But the mind or the heart, it doesn't need to be fixed. So when we cultivate patience in meditation practice and then from there out into daily life, 
it's that beautiful balance where there is a lot of energy. It's a hyper-energetic state. But the energy isn't fixing. It isn't pushing and pulling the objects. It isn't grasping, clinging to the objects that are being known. So there is a brightness and a nimbleness of the mind, of the knowing. But it's very clean. It's not sticky at all. So this is a way, another way to understand patience. It's like, instead of Mark being patient, think of patience as a word that describes the way the mind relates to objects, the way it connects to objects. So there's a knowing, but there's no agenda in the knowing. There's no fixing, no stickiness, no clinging in the knowing. I'll just finish the last couple paragraphs here in this section I wanted to read. So this is Joseph Goldstein again. He says, Surrender does not mean passive resignation. Rather, it means surrender to the Dharma, to the truth of the moment's experience. Such acceptance enables us to make effort to arouse energy without agitation or grasping. We have a sense of spiritual urgency, while at the same time we soften and surrender to just what is happening in the moment, and then this, and then the next. And the real trick here is some kind of faith, some kind of sense that there's something here in the moment. It's really the important ingredient, maybe often the missing ingredient. You know, when we resign ourselves, when we're kind of overusing surrender, what happens is we we don't realize it. We're not necessarily aware of it, but there's some sense that, oh, I already know the breath. I already know what meditation is. So there's not a that kind of powerful showing up, that vivid, hyper-energetic, nimble, bright quality in the mind. There's just sort of like, we're going through the motions of meditation. I know meditation is good for me, so I just do it every day. <laughs> but we're not actually there in the meditation experience. So the idea is that... Uh, this moment, you know, it's everything. Everything that needs to be known, needs to be understood, is here. Where else would it be? You know, we imagine in some kind of weird way, I mean, it's weird when you really think about it, we imagine that what we need to understand, what we need to see is somewhere out there, as if there were actually something out there. But it's only here and now. So if there is something to wake up to, it's got to be here, because there isn't any other place. I know we think there is. We think there's some other place, but here. But where would that place be? It's just an idea that we have that there's another place where we're going to have an important insight someday. But that place is always here and now. And if we bring that kind of respect into each moment of practice, it really activates that right effort, you know, that hyper-energetic state, that brightness of mind. So in a way, effort has a lot to do with faith. And the lack of effort has a lot to do with the absence of faith. And this is really true, because if we look around this world of ours, we see that human beings definitely are not afraid of making effort. I mean, just look what we've done to this planet. Look what people do. Look at the hobbies people do have. You know, people carry 60-pound backpacks and walk up and down mountains, and they spend a lot of money doing this. So, you know, we build pyramids and skyscrapers and civilization. So we do all kinds of things. It's not like we have a problem doing. <laughs> and we, the thing is, we have faith in those things. Like we have faith in working hard to earn $40,000 so we can buy a big car. We have faith that that you know, is relevant or important or will lead to happiness. We don't have faith that looking deeply into the present moment leads somewhere. So we don't invest the kind of energy into it. 
We invested in other things. You know, for someone like me, I might invest a lot of energy in reading the newspaper. As if something meaningful ultimately will happen to me because of these cumulative hours of reading the New York Times. Like somehow on my deathbed or whenever, there's a payback to putting that time in. Or, you know, you can think of your particular activities, like adding up the hours we spend watching sitcoms or talking to friends about relatively unimportant things. You know, we really add up those hours and the energy it takes and the money it takes to do the things that we do. And then we wonder, well, what's the payback here? What, what kind of faith is operating? Because the energy to do what we do, it takes some kind of faith or confidence. This is a meaningful thing to do. This is a meaningful thing to study. This is a meaningful skill to develop. So part of this patience, <clears throat> the capacity to be open and interested and undefended, raw, real, mindful in the moment, is that faith that the moment actually is relevant. This moment is relevant. This moment of our life actually is our life. I mentioned this morning, um, a while ago, I, I read an article about embryology. I don't know a lot about it, but some of you may know more. But you know, one of the interesting things about the study is evidently, like a human embryo, it undergoes pretty much all of evolution in its in its development. I don't know, nine months, I guess. But you know, in that period of time, amazing things happen. And from a scientific point of view. Western scientific point of view, there's really no easy way to explain that whole process of transformation of the embryo, how the information gets split apart and divided, and all of a sudden some cells know how to be a liver, and others know how to be a pancreas and brain and all that. And just that whole transformation from you know, a single cell organism to whatever, you know, what it becomes. And so, you know, I, I bring this up only to just loosen our screws a bit about how any moment probably, you know, we can open our mind that any moment includes everything. Each moment of our life has everything that we need, that the mind or heart needs to see. Another way to think about it is, all of the complexities of our lives, all the confusion, all the entanglements, all the psychic weight we imagine that we feel and live with, all of this stuff of life is here. And it's like, uh, you know, in Buddhism we have a concept, sunata, emptiness. You know, ultimately, it's not much of anything. But clearly, that's not its appearance, right? Does, anybody li does anybody's life seem really extremely simple and empty? <laughs> no, it seems heavy and complicated and entangled and uncertain and heavy. I, I know I said that, but just heavy in the sense of like, like a lot of unfinished business, like it's going to take a long time. But one way to think about it is that there's some sort of splitting apart, you know, into opposites, something that's whole, simple, empty, empty of complications, just so you don't think of empty in terms of a nihilistic sense, like absolutely nothing there, but empty of any complications, whole, singular. And then somehow, who knows how, things get split apart. And it can, you know, that splitting apart, that dividing can be endlessly complex. And from particular points of view in that complexity, things can get very heavy or seem very beautiful or very scary. Basically, an infinite number of possibilities can be expressed. But ultimately, coming all together, it's not much of anything. Because it all cancels each other, everything out. Opposites cancel each other out. So patience and practice is really supporting this balance that allows for this existential resolution. You know, things balancing each other out. 
you know how, I mean, even in a really superficial way, you know how it is, like, when we let our minds run with certain storylines during our days, you know, somebody's gotten us upset or there's something we see, have seen in a catalog that we think will make us really happy or whatever, and our mind's kind of churning on it, and things get more and more complicated. How am I going to pay for it? Should I pay this off before I buy this? Or how can I get even with this person? Or should I just let it go? But I don't want to really sit with this pain. It doesn't seem fair. Maybe I'll talk to my friend. And oh, I'm always leaning on this friend. And, and it just <laughs> it can get really confusing and complicated. And so with this understanding, you know, we know this just in simple ways, like we just drop it or we just, just like a sense of humor enters in. It's almost like we see how we've gotten really wigged out over here. But in order to see how we've gotten way out here, we need wisdom or we need some perspective over here. And there's like a moment where the, the sort of wisdom meets the craziness and things just get resolved. Like a big storm all of a sudden isn't a big storm in the mind anymore. And maybe all there's left is sort of a little amused smile on our face. It goes, wow, I was amazing. <laughs> because we, doesn't that happen a lot in our lives? And so this is just, the practice is just developing that into uh, spiritual science where we understand that things can be resolved. Everything can be resolved. Even the issue of birth and death, you know, and all these psychic complications around birth and death. Do I continue? Who was I in a past life? Who will I be? Have I been with this partner before? Was he or she my son or daughter? <laughs> Do we have unresolved issues? <laughs> you know, were they my boss? <laughs> you know, all these sort of weird things that just uh, confuse us. And there's no end, and you know, and there's a whole publishing industry sort of promoting the complications, even in Buddhism. All the different things, you know, like in Theravada Buddhism and this particular tradition, there's a real emphasis on all the lists. So people can feel quite neurotic about learning the lists and understanding the lists, you know, the Four Noble Truths and the Five Aggregates and the Three Kinds of Craving and the Seven enlightenment factors, the five hindrances. I'm just getting started. The ten paramis I mentioned. <laughs> I, bet, I bet someone could give a talk where all they're doing is naming the list. And I bet they could go on for half an hour if they spoke in a kind of quiet, calm way. <laughs> so we can work with this in our practice, you know, where we sit down and we, we use the energy that comes from having a sense that there's something relevant, something important, something to really open up to, something that is actually transforming. Not later when we're good or we've been meditating for a long time, but maybe this moment is enough. But then the other half of patience, the other half of the meditation instructions is the surrender. So. Another way of saying that is the faith, the energy, the sort of full showing up, that's the only effort. Any effort to get something then begins to color the mind. Because actually the, what's really transforming is the unrestricted awareness, is that quality of clarity. And any agenda, any trying to get something because of the clarity, like using the clarity to get something, gets in the way. This is something that slowly, you know, I'm beginning to understand in my practice. And, I, you know, I've been doing it now for a while, been pretty devoted, pretty regular for 27 years. And I'm really beginning, because it's now, it's, it's got some momentum. The energy, the brightness has some momentum. And the deep understanding that trying to do anything besides just being there with it, is hopeless. <laughs> it's just suffering. And it's so easy, you know, when, when you're sitting and you feel a lot of energy, you know, you could call it joy. You could call it aliveness, so you could, a bliss. So 
you know, it's a beautiful thing. And what do we want to do with beautiful things? We want to make something beautiful out of them. You know, we want to like explore our life and what we can do now that we feel some energy in our mind, in our heart, in our body. We don't want to just be with it. But that's that's really the the process of patience is not just because normally we think of patience as like gritting, bearing with what's unpleasant, but uh, also patience is being with what's alive and full and whole, the brightness of mind. And of course, one of the easiest avenues to that brightness, that aliveness, is to bear with pain. You know, when we're sitting with an uncomfortable or restless body or an uncomfortable mind states, restless mind states, bearing with that, you know, like really showing up, feeling what we feel, really letting it do its thing. So being undefended, meaning it feels like it's going to, you know, sometimes it's a claustrophobic feeling. We feel that the mind state or the physical state is going to consume us in some way. Literally, like we're going to die. And so giving into that, like really letting it have its impact. Because probably the restlessness in the body or mind isn't going to kill us. Or the dullness in the mind isn't going to kill us. Or sadness, or shame, or you know, countless other mind states and physical states. Probably they're not, it's not going to do any damage, long-term damage. And one of the effects of learning to just be with the present moment, and especially these difficult times, is there's a real bliss that arises and not having to run from the pain that naturally arises at times. A beautiful confidence, a beautiful feeling of aliveness comes. I mean, this is the interesting thing that patience leads to. So much of our life energy, our psychic <coughs> life energy, is bound up in what we're afraid of, what we run from, what we close off. You know, all the despicable and shameful parts of ourselves that we've packed away in different places, the thoughts that we don't allow ourselves to consciously let arise, all of these ways that we bind ourselves up, of course, what gets bound up is our life, our life energy. So the more that we practice patience, that wholehearted, faithful willingness to be with what is, this only this moment, the only thing we have, the more that it gets transformed into something that's very alive, very real, ungraspable. Of course, that doesn't mean we won't try to grasp it. So there are basically two issues, you know, that we deal with in life and then in particular in our meditation experience. As we begin to experiment with the teachings, the instructions, so we know enough to know to be clear, to relax, to trust, to let things be, to start over again, to see clearly, to be interested, to let things be, to let go, then there's you know, two problem areas that we develop skill. When things are really unpleasant, whether it's mentally unpleasant or physically unpleasant, we have faith that this too will end. And often, simply in the process of opening and trusting and bearing with what's difficult, something beautiful arises out of that. Even if it's as simple as the confidence that the heart or mind doesn't have to run from this experience, even that alone is quite beautiful and empowering. And What's even more difficult, the other thing that's very difficult, maybe more difficult, is then we have to learn to bear with joy and bliss and energy without taking it personally, without getting bound up in the energy, getting identified with the energy, getting attached to the energy, wanting it to last, wanting to do things with it. That's harder practice. So first we learn to be patient, most of us. I mean, it's different for different people, but mostly the first real part of, you know, first decade or lifetime, lifetimes of practice, we're really learning to be patient with what's difficult. 
And then at times, and then more and more times, we're learning to be patient with what's beautiful and energizing and full and amazing. And that's hard, harder work. Because once things start to feel alive, it feels so appropriate to get attached. You know, of course we don't want to be attached to what's unpleasant. That makes sense. Oh, yeah. <laughs> don't get attached to what's unpleasant because it hurts. So we all the incentives work right work the right way in working with unpleasant experience. It's more uh, pleasant experience is more diluting. So we need a lot of support to be patient with what's pleasant. Just to let the pleasantness, the joy, the energy do its thing without grasping or holding. So we'll leave it here for patience. We have about 15, 20 minutes for discussion. Be nice to hear from people what you've been learning in your practice what's been difficult, questions about the talk tonight or about patients. So what comes to mind? Yeah, say your name, please. Yeah, thank you. I'm Jane. I'm just a question. Yeah, Joseph Goldstein's book, Insight Meditation. Yeah, it's a wonderful, basic book introducing this style of practice. On, I think it's on our website under the resource page. If you look there, resources page on the website, you'll get the link or the details. Other comments, questions? Yeah, Edwin. Um, you were mentioning uh, being attached to consciousness. That kind of questions in my mind as to what specifically would that be. So I started imagining what that would be like being attached to being alive, <laughs> like having consciousness. Um, attached to knowing. Attached. Yeah. And taking it for granted and taking it personally, as opposed to seeing seeing that amazing thing where objects are always met with awareness, with consciousness. And out of that comes knowing. You know, and just so we're really beginning to appreciate this potential to know, or the, how uh, objects get illuminated, experience arises. Your thoughts? Yeah, I don't know your name. Jennifer. Hi. Hi. When you are talking about sitting with something but not having a, um, a goal in mind, you were talking um, a few talks ago about when you were in New York and you were uh, sitting with the idea of not wanting to stay there, and, and your wife, mm -hmm. I mean, your wife. And you said you were sitting with it. Is it just then the question of it, or is it just the feeling of the uncertainty of it, or what exactly are you sitting with? Well, we're sitting with what's actually real. I mean, there's the specific question, like, what was I sitting with in that moment? But yeah, but the answer, I mean, the more general answer is, and this is, this is so comforting. Because it's never complicated. It's always what it is in the moment, you know. And so a lot of times we think, well, wait a minute, I don't know what it is. But that is itself the experience, the not knowing what it is, if that's what your experience is. So we don't actually have to go looking for what to open to. Because it's already this experience we're living or having. So it's in a sense more about letting it in. Like I was saying with uh, to Edwin, you know, comment about consciousness. Consciousness will naturally illuminate the moment. We there isn't a somebody that has to make an effort to know what needs to be opened to. It will just arise. The experience arises, moment, 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 moment by moment. What a relief! So even as a meditator, the idea that having to be a meditator in order to connect to see what this moment is, it's a little bit too much. You know, it's, it makes it more complicated than it is. It's more about relaxing, like letting all those polar opposites come together, resolve themselves, so the moment gets radically simple. And the knowing of whatever it is that needs to be open to or seen or dealt with, all of that will happen naturally and a lot of it is just about learning how to get out of the way, learning how to allow complications that we arise, always involving self-centered thinking, 
to allow complications to resolve themselves merely by not reinforcing them with identification. They'll stop because as soon as we stop identifying, kind of reconstructing the self-centered dramas, things get simple. So it's not about what we have to do, like I have to connect to what's real in this moment. It's about letting what is distorting and complicating resolve itself. And then the moment will become more revealed, I guess, will unpack itself, will sort of blossom in the relatively uncomplicated space of the mind, will be known and seen for what it is. And then understanding will arise out of that clear scene, you know, and that understanding naturally becomes part of the mind stream. And so the view, the wisdom gets developed in that process of letting things get simple. In the simplification of mind, things are seen more clearly with less distortion. That clear seeing leads to a deepening of understanding which allows the mind to be less complicated, less likely to get complicated less often. Hopefully that wasn't too complicated. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Alexis. Um, A few while ago I asked you about uh, pulling the board, and you had been very helpful in that regard. And I'm wondering if you things. I mean, many interesting things in what you said, Alexis. But one thing is how in very subtle ways, not in big shifts, in very subtle ways, we can support the maintenance of the balance in mind by very little things, like just remembering the heart. Like you said, it probably wasn't much more than, I mean, I'll put more words to it, but just remembering that the heart cares. Because it it supports like a, a greater balance. Like maybe as you sort of realize a sense of space the, and the apps, this sort of relatively unformed mind, let's say. And maybe it kind of threw the mind a little out of balance so there was some fear in the mind. What is this? Un, you know, it's unfamiliar. And then just to sort of balance that out, just remember, oh, I care about you, honey. You know, just to feel that that heart expressing its concern and and basic care for this moment's experience. All of a sudden, the mind was more, less distorted, more right there in the experience. And these things will happen naturally with practice. The mind will, heart will know how to balance itself out and will be so impressed. And it won't feel personal, won't feel like, boy, was I skillful. I mean, you might say that, but it won't feel good if you say that. <laughs> and it will feel really right if you go, wow, that was great. But, no, but I didn't do it. It was just wisdom arising naturally 
organically. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I forgot your name. I'm sorry. I'm Jennifer. 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 Um, I routinely get two small children to school in the morning. It's just a perfect place for patients. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like a classic place. that and you know really we don't need any more teachings than that it's just a matter of whatever that resolution that happened in those moments it's just basically generalizing the principle everywhere all the ordinary moments generalizing that same principle but then taking it using it in a more subtle way the same movement but just in more and more subtle ways so that very subtle complications in the mind you know, just like even the subtle complication, like, I'm really calm. That's a little disturbance in the mind when we're sitting and we're really peaceful and we know we're really peaceful. And just that can be evaporated or resolved in a moment. And then things, and one of the interesting things in practice is things do get resolved, get quieter, get more amazingly subtle or amazingly expansive, you know, however you see it, getting bigger or getting smaller. But they can always get smaller or bigger. You know, things can get even more simple. Just when we think it couldn't get any simpler, the void couldn't get any more void. Voidy. <laughs> it gets more voidy. <laughs> Someone talked about the opposite direction, you know, complications. He called it lifey. <laughs> I asked somebody how he was doing today after the morning practice group. He said, oh, lifey is, uh, life is lifey. <laughs> Thanks, Jennifer, for sharing that. It's really beautiful. There's uh, time for one more. Yeah, uh, Sandy. Just comment on um, kind of the opposite end of life and, and experience of patients. I've just been um, taking care of my aunt for six weeks, um, who is has just gone over the edge with what they call dementia. It was very challenging at first, <laughs> physical care, but. Um, I, I feel really honored now to have been with her as she kind of went out somewhere where she is now in her mind. And what I experienced at first as trying to muster patience became <coughs> sort of like an opening of another level of senses where I was just, you know, I'd feel patience and then something would let loose inside of me and I would, I would be listening and seeing at a different level and I would be honestly engaged and interested in a way that I never was before. And I didn't feel like patience anymore. Yeah. It just felt like really something coming alive in me. And it was really touching because um, it opened up a communication that we could have that she couldn't really have with other people. And she was terrified yeah. and didn't have a way to share it. And so it was really quite a gift. Oh, thanks so much for sharing that, Sandy. Anybody else? We, there's a couple minutes left. Yeah. I don't know your name. My name is Trent. This is my second time being here. My former, roughly four years ago, I went to see my best friend over in St. Paul for the first time in a long time. And I didn't know the directions in St. Paul enough 
directions, and I was able to calm down. And then I started rushing because I was so excited. She <laughs> and the therapist at the same time. And then, like, um, then I started to think to myself, well, wait a minute, if I'm going, you know, I'm rushing myself and using all my energy now, what am I going to have left when I finally get there? <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't take much much perspective to realize, you know, most of the time, the way we're living is really just crazy. I mean, it it is insane how we run around, and and we know it. And I think the appropriate response is kind of what you heard a few seconds ago. It's just a a good hearty laugh, and starting over again, you know, because uh, it it is it's it's tragic on the one hand, but it's totally understandable. I mean, we understand that we are caught in the sort of sense of that we react to reactivity, and it just sort of builds. And in Buddhism, we call it samsara, you know, and it's frustrating and frustrating, leading to more frustrating and on and on. And it's a relief. So when we do catch it, like when you shared your story, and we catch it a little bit, that's what that laughter is. It's kind of a relief, like, oh, yeah, we don't have to do that. We don't have to run around with our heads cut off. Oh. So let's leave it here. That's a good place to end. Let's take a time to take a few breaths. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.